Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm still Tane Kell. And once again, we're going to attempt, in this episode, a single case deep dive. That's right. Occasionally, our appellate courts issue opinions that seem to be overflowing with topics that judges need to know. So a variety of issues that come from a single set of facts. And with those issues, there come some issues that arise with regularity in our courts, Tane. Yeah. We've made a few of these deep dive episodes now, and we'd really appreciate some feedback from you, our loyal listener, or, or I mean, listeners, right? I'm sure we have two. Don't we have two? I got at least a plurality. So make sure we hear from you via email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com and let us know if you like this format. If you don't like this format or if you're absolutely neutral on this format. Yeah. So anyway, enough of that. Let's tell the folks what we're discussing here today, Wade. So today we're going to do a deep dive in a case decided by the Georgia Supreme Court on March 1st, 2021. The case of Gallenos versus Estate. I'm going to spell it, and if I'm hacking the pronunciation, I'll apologize to everybody who cares. That is G-I-A-L-E-N-O-I-S, and I'm going to pronounce it Gallenos, and it's maybe potentially way wrong, but that's okay. Yeah, this case was tried by our good friend and a man who really helps us a great deal with uh, new judge orientation, and that's Superior Court Judge Tony Baker. Cherokee County. Woo-hoo. Thank you, Tony, for all that you do for us. So just a reminder, whenever we discuss a case, this one or any other, we're not making any sort of negative comment about any trial participant. The truth is that without our judges and our lawyers trying these cases and these cases somehow winding their way through and coming up, popping up in the appellate process, you and I, we wouldn't be able to teach or learn from our colleagues' successes or failures. So always remember that any time on this podcast, if we're teaching, if in new judge orientation, if we're examining a case, we're doing so that we can all learn from them. And we're not trying to comment on how the trial was handled or even comment on the work of our friends on the appellate benches. We wouldn't do that. No, we love them. All right. So to get started, we're going to intentionally skip over some of the facts and the names and the dates and the other details to prevent any issues with retrials or further appeals. These names and facts, et cetera, are all in the appellate decision. So it's not like we're revealing any secrets. We just want to minimize any impact our podcast and its huge listener audience may have on the natural progression (laughs) of the case that we're discussing. So let's talk about the facts of Gaynos. And this is going to take us a minute. This, uh, you couldn't believe, um, the length of, of, of facts in some of these cases. So let me start right to it. The defendant team was convicted of malice murder and a firearms offense based upon the fatal shooting of Brian Overseth, who the decision descri- described as, quote, the husband of Gallenos's mistress. Yes. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Overseth were married for many years, but Carrie, Mrs. Carrie Overseth, the wife, met the defendant on a, at, online at a time when the Overseths were living in Montana and he was, uh, the defendant was living in Georgia. The couple moved to Montana from Georgia just before Carrie met the defendant online. After meeting online, Carrie and the defendant continued almost daily communications with one another through calls and text messages, despite the distance between them. Carrie had occasion to come back to Georgia to be with her father, who was ill, not long after she had begun talking with the defendant. It was then that Carrie Overseth 
first met the defendant in person and the relationship became sexual after she let him into her father's home through a window. Just a quick pause. Anytime the case says let him in through the window at your father's house, not awesome. Not awesome at all. During the week or so that Carrie was in Georgia tending to her father, she and the defendant met in person several times. The defendant always had a gun on his person whenever they were together, and he told Carrie very specifically that if she were to ever sleep with her husband again, he would kill them both. Carrie eventually returned to Montana to be with her family, and the defendant sent her very angry and several very angry text messages demanding that she stay in Georgia. That's right. The defendant continued to urge Carrie to leave her husband, and he quite oddly, in my opinion, sent her and her children gifts. She had an adult son who learned of the affair, quote, through social media, and the adult son attempted to speak with the defendant. Gyanos told Carrie's son that he was in love with Carrie. Later in the year, Carrie told the defendant that she was pregnant, which infuriated Gyanos because the pregnancy was proof that she was again sleeping with her husband, Brian Overseth. More about that pregnancy will uh, come up in a moment as we examine the legal issues raised on appeal. So during the Christmas holidays, the Overseth family returned to Georgia to spend some time with family. And while Mr. Overseth was away from the home where Carrie and the children were actually located, the defendant would come over even when he was not invited, bang on windows and whatnot. In January, after they had come in December, Carrie told the defendant they were about to return to Montana. Carrie and the defendant texted one another a great deal over that next day with the defendant urging Carrie not to return to Montana. The next evening, the evening before the Overseth family was scheduled to return to Montana, Brian Overseth left the home late that evening where he was, where he was staying late in the evening to walk the dog, but he never came back. And after a while, the, I guess the, the police obtained cell phone records and learned that the defendant's cell phone, Guyanus' cell phone, was pinging off a cell tower in the same vicinity as the home where Mr. Overseth was staying most of that evening. That's right. Um, so when he didn't return to the house, Carrie's father went out to look for him and found Brian Overseth's lifeless body in a nearby access road where he became concerned uh, because he hadn't returned from walking on the dog, and so he, uh, he followed the access road and found uh, his son-in-law's body. Carrie's father checked for a pulse. He found none, and he ran to a neighbor's house and called 911. The authorities came to the scene and found that Brian was dead and that he had a single bullet hole in his forehead. Officers found an expended federal brand 22 shell casing near Brian's feet. Now, the police got in touch with Carrie, and they said, they asked her the obvious question, do you know anyone who would want to harm your husband? She immediately identified Gayanos as a potential suspect. She provided the defendant's cell, cell number to the police, and the only problem was she didn't have an address for him. She had slept with him, but she didn't know where he stayed. The authorities located Gainas the next day, and he was rather evasive with his answers to their questions, indicating he couldn't remember if he had been in Cherokee County on the relevant night. In addition, during the subsequent burial service for Mr. Overseth, the defendant, Gainas, arrived uninvited and brought with him a bouquet of dead flowers. I didn't know that was a thing. 
It was a Rolling Stones song like back in the early 70s. To bring dead flowers to a funeral? Yeah, bring me dead flowers for my... Anyway, uh, so uh, Guyanus was asked to leave the ceremony, and eventually he did leave the ceremony. A few nights later, Guyanus entered the backyard of Carrie's sister's home where Carrie was staying with her children and left a package addressed to Carrie. The package contained some, some, some bizarre items, and the family immediately called the police. Police located Guyanus at a nearby gas station, and he admitted that he had been the person who entered the yard and left the package. He was arrested initially for a stalking and was eventually charged with murder. At trial for the murder, the shell casing found at the scene of Brian Overseth's murder was identified as having been fired by a Walther P-22 pistol. Police eventually learned from the defendant's ex-wife that he owned a 45 caliber pistol and that he also owned a Walther P-22 pistol. A firearms dealer identified or testified that he had sold the Walther weapon to the defendant along with a box of, wait for it, federal 22 caliber ammunition, the same make as the casing found at the murder scene. They never did locate the 22 pistol, but they did locate the 45 pistol. The defendant's ex-wife also told the police that at the house they used to live at together, they would shoot both of those pistols from the back deck of that residence, and then the police went and searched that residence, and they located underneath the deck three federal 22 caliber shell casings. The firearms examiner was able to testify that one of those shell casings found at the residence absolutely was fired from the same weapon that fired the fatal shot that killed Mr. Overseth. The other two casings were too corroded, really, to be used or identified. Now, Wade, first of all, a shout-out to the investigators who investigated this case. I'm not sure that I have had many cases where that level of investigation was conducted, regardless of the outcome of the case. That's, yeah. that's pretty good work. I, I'm not trying to, to say anything about my local investigators, but I'm not no. sure I've seen anything like that, where it's they went to the old house and talked and to beyond. the ex-wife. and It's just wow. Yeah, it's good stuff. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane, and you're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web. As always, you can find our outlines for these podcasts, as well as supplemental materials on our website at goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcasts at our email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com, and we're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcasting platform. And tell all your friends. And now, back to the action. So now, this appeal has five issues that we think we ought to talk about. And, and Tane, tell us about the first one. Sure. The first issue is denial of the motion to suppress the cell phone records, which included cell site location information, or what we call CSLI. Um, it's an acronym we've discussed in previous episodes dealing with the admission of electronic evidence. So th this case also dealt with a hearsay objection to the admission of cell phone records through the business record exception. Again, a topic that we have discussed previously with our FOP, friend of the podcast, Gary Mueller. 
Yeah, it also discussed the trial court's decision to limit cross-examination and an argument concerning the, quote, rule of completeness. Next, here comes our old friend 404B again, and what is an intrinsic evidence. And so this case dealt with that. If we have to, we'll, we will call Judge McBurney on the phone and talk to him about that. Mm. And the final big issue that was discussed in the case was the denial of a motion to suppress a statement made by the defendant to law enforcement authorities. So let's start with the CSLI data because this is a change in the law and it's fairly recent. And not everybody's probably on the cutting edge of this. So let's talk about this. And it comes up a lot. It does. CSLI data would probably include everything relating to a cell phone. So if you wanted to get the pinging information over where the phone was located, if you wanted to get the text messages, the, the substance such that, that Verizon or whatever company still has them, that's all included under CSLI data. The U.S. Supreme Court in 2018 decided this case called Carpenter. It doesn't have a U.S. site. It's 138 Supreme Court 2206. And it's going to be on our outline, so don't wreck your car trying to write this down. But the Supreme Court said that a search warrant or some sort of court order is required before law enforcement officers can obtain CSLI data. This decision, frankly, was a pretty big departure from some all the federal statutes dealing with CSLI that had previously said, particularly if there was an emergency situation, Law enforcement could send an emergency order to, in an attempt to try to find somebody, they usually reference kidnappings. Right. But, but it's going to be really important that you note the Carpenter case was decided in 2018. Mr. Overseth was killed in 2017. In fact, in January of 2017, so long before the Carpenter decision came out. The Georgia Supreme Court has recently dealt with a similar issue in the case of Lofton versus the state, and the citation for that's in our outline. So in order to fully discuss this issue, we need to go back to some of the facts that we left out in the initial discussion of the facts. I know y'all find it hard to believe we didn't talk about all the facts and all that long recitation, but, close. but we talked about how good this investigation was. A lieutenant with the Holly Springs Police Department had been called to the murder scene. He was extremely worried because of the nature of the murder. Seemed it, it seemed to be execution style. It was a contact wound with a 22, and there really were no suspects. So Carrie identified the defendant as being a potential suspect, and she told the police that he knew where they were staying, knew where her family lived, and she was concerned about all of their safety because the defendant had absolutely made threats previously about killing Carrie and her husband. So the lieutenant being concerned about, we got to find out if this guy's here or gone, or if it's even him, we, he contacted Verizon and he completed or submitted an emergency situation disclosure form that, that that's absolutely allowed under the law that existed at that time. The request was appropriately limited in terms of how long he was looking for data, et cetera. And frankly, he just wanted to know where that cell phone was right now he understood he was going to have to get a search warrant for a, a larger investigative subpoena. And kudos to him for knowing that. Yeah, I'm I mean, not no, sure. I, I'm serious. Yeah. I mean, I, seriously, I don't know that everybody understands how that works. And so he got the data from Verizon, and it's just a bunch of gobbledygook. I mean, it does, does, he can't make heads or tails out I, of it. I've seen one of those forms before when they come back. Yeah, it's, it's just, just like, what does this mean? Numbers and letters. Yeah, little points and graphs and stuff. So he calls Verizon. He says, look, I want you to tell me where the phone is right now. 
And they said, okay, it's in Hall County, Georgia, which is not Cherokee County, Georgia. Which it's is not where, the other side of the universe, but it's not next door. He wasn't in the immediate vicinity of where Carrie and her family were. Exactly. So the officer wisely and very wisely concluded that the immediate threat was not present. And so he had a police officer guard the home where Carrie was staying with her family until they could locate the defendant. But he didn't do anything else with these Verizon records. Yes. So at trial... Guyanos contended that because the lieutenant obtained his CSLI from Verizon without a court order, those records should be suppressed because the lack of a court order was a violation of Carpenter. Now, remember, the Carpenter decision came out between the time of the murder and the time that this case was tried. The argument went further to suggest that because the initial records were improperly obtained, the later cell phone records probably what they were more concerned about, um, which were obtained with a search warrant, should also be suppressed. In other words, they made a fruit-of-the-poison-tree argument uh, that all of it should be suppressed. What, does, what did the, our friends on the Supreme Court say? They roundly disagreed. They said, no. Nah. <laughs> Just as the Georgia Supreme Court had held in Lofton, which, which is a decision that if you have one of these, you ought to read, the court held that at the time the lieutenant obtained the records from Verizon, there really was no state or federal law that prohibited a mer an emergency request for records. They made a really extensive discussion of the policy reasons by, that support the exclusionary rule, which Tane basically says if you violate the Fourth Amendment, you should exclude that from evidence. Right. The court found that none of those policy justifications really would support suppressing this evidence. And then the court held that the trial court was actually correct in denying that motion to suppress. That's right. A couple so, points. So tell them the, the sort of takeaways from this. Yeah. Point. So the takeaways of this is first, the Carpenter decision essentially nullifies the federal statutes that allow for an emergency disclosure of CSLI without a court order sanctioning the disclosure. In other words, you got to go get a warrant for it. Uh, the decision in this case echoes the decision in Lofton, which held that when a law in effect at the time of the search was unclear and seemed to actually allow for the emergency disclosure of the CSLI information, denying a motion to suppress is not error. The court kind of glossed over the trial court's reasoning in denying the motion to suppress, which was the independent source exception and exigent circumstances, and instead relied upon its prior decision in Lofton. So when you talk about the independent source exception and the exigent circumstances exception, be aware we're talking about exceptions to the warrant requirement. That's right. With the independent source, that would be an exception to the exclusionary rule. You see, the, I mean, they're related, but they're slightly different. So basically out of that decision, they, they, they really, really said, you know, we're not going to hold you to an unreasonable standard. And so, because that wasn't the law when the thing went down. Yeah, or to anticipate a law that hasn't even been yeah. put into place yet. So let's move now to the second issue, and that being the business records exception to the hearsay rule. Something that gets jumbled up all the time. So OCGA section 24-8-803, and particularly subsection 6, is the business records exception to the hearsay rule. In this case, the cell phone records eventually obtained from Verizon were admitted as business records. Now, these were other 
cell phone records showing where Guyanos was at various times when the murder was allegedly being committed, not the records of where he was after the murder was committed. Um, they were authenticated via affidavit from the records custodian, as is allowed under 803 and under 902. And we've talked about this with Garen. Seriously, we talked. We did a whole episode on the business records exception. So the defendant... Because he knows there's a business records exception because they get you through the hearsay problem, right, Tane? Right. He says, I got a confrontation clause problem, right? Because under Crawford, we've talked about this in other, in other episodes, the defendant has a right to confront the witnesses and the records custodian didn't testify in person. Therefore, they allege a, a confrontation clause problem. But you folks who are our loyal listeners will remember back to an episode we did a couple of episodes back where we said, and I quote, the confrontation clause only applies to, wait for it, testimonial evidence. So Wade, how did that apply in this case? You know, we discussed it when we talked about that Finney case or our first little foray into all of this uh, deep single diving. case deep diving. Um, so... The evidence is deemed testimonial only if its primary purpose of making the statement was to further a criminal prosecution. Remember, you, Tane, you may remember we talked about 911 calls. Yeah. So true business records, things that really qualify as business records, are never going to be testimonial. Almost never. Because they are made in the regular course of business. Their primary purpose is not to further prosecutions. That's they're, right. they're, they're made to bill people. They're made to keep up with if, if your technology's working or find your phone if it gets stolen. They're, the primary purpose is not to further a prosecution in, in this case or any other case. And so true business records, it would be really strange for you to have a true business record that qualifies the business record and also was found to be testimonial. Yeah, and, and of course we're excluding records kept in the normal course of uh, police departments, oh, yeah, businesses, yeah, 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 and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hello, hello. This is producer Steven here. These guys are running a little bit long, so this episode is going to be broken up. Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that, and we really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.